Hi, good evening. Uh, welcome to Neuerhaus Madison Square. My name is Alonso, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce our guests tonight. Um, this is a collaboration we're doing with um, Simon Collins. So thank you very, very much um, for, <laughs> for bringing this to Neuerhaus, and it's about how to start and succeed in business. Please welcome our panelists tonight, Janelle Lombardo and Matt Scannon, and of course, Simon as well. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, thanks very much to Neuerhaus for having us. So, hello, everybody. It's lovely to see you. Uh, I do think it's important, if you're ever going to speak on stage, to have a giant picture of yourself above you, uh, which was a little bit of a surprise to me, but there you go. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, no, it was supposed to be bigger. Uh, um, so, we're going to talk about how to get into the fashion business, but before we do that, um, I just want to introduce my two guests and perhaps say uh, as briefly as I can why I'm here and why anyone should listen to anything I say. But uh, well, let's start with Janae Lombardo. So, Janae, uh, contestant number one, tell us what you do and where you're from. Hi, um, I am, can you hear me okay? Okay. I am the co founder of Made Fashion Week and I have my own company, The Terminal Presents, which is a strategic branding and marketing company. Very succinct. I like that. Matthew. Uh, I'm the CEO of Nottam. Uh, we're a um, digital-first retailer, but we focus on cashmere. And, um, yeah, I also run a small venture fund focused on um, sustainable consumer businesses, mostly in fashion. So for those of you that are taking notes, that's two examples of how to massively underplay what you do. <laughs> Um, I, I happen to know a lot more about what they do than, than they've explained. Uh, so I'm, my name's Simon Collins. Uh, this is a fashion culture design production. We're actually recording it for our podcast as well. Fashion culture design came about because I, at one point, was a fashion designer and then a creative director, and then I worked for Parsons. I was the dean of Parsons for of the School of Fashion for seven years. And when I came out of there, I had lots of these friends in fashion, like Janae and Matt and other people, and when we were at Parsons, we were bringing people together and making things happen. And so along the way through this conversation, if you're interested in fashion, then do make a point of remembering some elements of it, because bringing people together is one of the main reasons you get to stay in fashion. Anyway, we were doing that. And when I left, some people, some friends said, what are you going to do now? And I was doing lots of various things. And they said, why didn't you get people together? So that's what we did with fashion culture design. It's now uh, a, a salon. It's a, it's a series of salons. It's a series of podcasts, and it's major unconferences that take place in New York and now in China, and will be going global. So I exist only to get smart people together and get them to say clever things. Um, Janae, uh, she mentioned Made Fashion Week. Does anyone here not know what that is? Because without Made Fashion Week, there are dozens of designers you wouldn't have heard of. Uh, Janae spent, with, with Rassi and Keith, the other founders, spent how many years? Five, six now? Eight, maybe? Eight? Nine? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Nine years um, producing a fashion week outside of the regular fashion week confines. So we all know about IMG and all the other people that have had a hand in fashion week. Made was created to circumvent that and to enable young designers or new designers to have a show and not have to spend tons of cash. And it was amazing. It, it just is incredible. And it, I, I still remember Janae and, and Rassi and Keith getting all excited about every time a designer went in and said, uh, we want to have a show. I mean, how much are you going to cost? And they'd say, nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's free. We pay for it. It's amazing. And, you yeah. know, and, and all this whining about, this endless whining about New York Fashion Week being relevant or not. And I look at the other ones and go, you haven't done that, have you? So anyway, Janae did that. And Matt, 
um, drove, I was corrected earlier on, drove across the desert in a Lexus pickup truck, not in a regular pickup truck, with, and I thought it was a million dollars in cash in the back, because I'm an idiot, it was two million. Two and a half. But two and a half. Yeah, so why don't we start by explaining that and why you spent two and a half million dollars that was in carrier bags? So it's a, a long story. Um, as uh, you may or may not know, I don't come from fashion at all. And uh, I don't know anything about Fashion Week, to be totally candid. Um, I come from a finance background. I worked in private equity. And uh, I ran a nonprofit for a little while in the middle of the Gobi Desert. Um, and there's a story about how that happened. Um, but it turned out the best way to support the people we were supporting with nonprofit work was actually by building a supply chain for them. And uh, to do that, to kick it off, I had to uh, travel with um, 65 pounds of money. That's two and a half million dollars. Um, and I had to pay for everything in cash. And I, I bought 60 tons of cashmere uh, in the middle of the Gobi Desert from about a thousand different herding families and launched my business um, called Nottam. That's the most concise way I think I That's can pretty say. concise. So Nardum is a cashmere business. You will have seen it, I'm sure, via some way of social media. Matt manages to find his way into everyone's inbox one way or another. Uh, and it's this wonderful cashmere that's hitherto been available primarily online. You just opened your first retail. Yeah, I mean, um, I understood digital a little bit better. I, I liked uh, creating a direct relationship with the customer. So online makes sense. Um, and we did just open our first store in, in Nolita. Uh, it's a pop-up, and I think we'll test those out in a couple different areas. We also sell yarn, and we do private labeling, and we also retail. So we do a little bit of everything, but I like to say we're digital first because it sounds... Better. And the reason I was excited about having Janae and Matt together is they both, neither of them come from a particularly fashion background, and yet they've both been massively instrumental in fashion and how to stay in it. So as is always the case with any talk that uh, we do, you have to ask questions. So we'll, a little bit later on, we'll be asking for questions from the audience, but don't miss this chance, because Matt is very adept at raising money for fashion and keeping a business, like from a very business plan, all the stuff that I don't understand, uh, perspective, which you need to know about if you're serious about being in fashion. Janae, how did you come to found Made Fashion Week? Um, I was working at MAC Cosmetics at the time. I was a, a senior executive there overseeing um, Sean John Fragrances, MAC, um, talent, fashion, and events. And I had started the fashion division at MAC, and I had inherited a, a pretty large budget. And I was like, what's this for? And um, they're like, oh, that's to sponsor IMG Fashion Week. And I was like, I, but what does that mean? And my bosses were like, oh, that means that we're the official cosmetic sponsor of New York Fashion Week. And I was like, but what does it mean? <laughs> I still don't get it. And so I, um, it's, it's, it's a funny coincidence because since this, um, my company made was bought by WME IMG. Um, but at the time, I came up with this idea that what if we took this money and we allowed for at the five designers to show over the course of a week and we would amortize that investment over the course of that week. And it started off with that idea and a conversation with Jack and Lazaro from Proenza Schooler. It turned into Joseph Altazara, public school, Suno, Alex Wang, you name it. So I went back to my bosses and I said, I think this is gonna work, you know? We'll do it with Rossi, who's just a whiz. If you haven't got to hear him speak, you should at some point, he's incredible. And Rossi and I are like, well, we need the best producer in the world to do it so we can really raise 
the standards for these designers because what we weren't doing was cutting corners. We offset the costs of their shows, um, but we didn't want the production and the level of quality to be of less value to them. So we brought in Keith. Um, and it was a really exciting time because a generational shift was occurring in that the Ralph Lorenz and Oscar de la Rentas weren't as culturally relevant, but none of the editors and buyers were paying attention to these younger guys. They also, bloggers didn't have a home. So bloggers weren't invited into shows. And so we were like, well, we'll do these kid shows and we need to fill up the space. <laughs> so we partnered with Tumblr and we just had them invite all of their kids and, and uh, yeah, and that's it. I think I was uh, uh, at Parsons at the time, I remember when you formed this, um, yeah. and what was so inspiring to me was typically whenever you're working with an institution, whether it's an institution that runs Fashion Week or has money or whatever they have, anyone that's established, they have a certain way of doing things. And you'll find people saying, well, that's not how we do it. We do it this way. And what you did with Rassi and with Keith was mm -hmm. so completely contrary to that. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, I, and, and the idea that we had that we since sold, I got nothing but no's from people for so long. And I think it's a really important life lesson that you know, just when somebody tells you no, it doesn't mean that you should stop doing it. It means you need to try harder and figure out a different path to make it happen. Um, but you know, what people don't realize, unless you are a designer or a producer, is that it's a really challenging business. And shows, even on the cheap, cost an enormous amount of money. And if you're unable to get a sponsor, because you know when your kids are graduating from Parsons, for example, they're not well versed in reaching out to brands and putting together. You know, this is you know we'll post this many times, so they often have to just pull money from friends and family. And so we allowed for these designers to show at no cost to them, so they could really focus on their creative craft, and we would take care of a lot of the heavy lifting, so they really had that luxury of being a designer. I feel like there was also the, the, the passion for getting people to do what they're good at. So, you know, it was taking money from people that wanted to put money into fashion, but they didn't really know how to do it, so they just were sort of blindly giving it to the big name. Yeah. And you were purposing it much more effectively and in a way where there was no waste. It wasn't like you, ha you had to use X company because that's just who everyone used. Yeah. You know, you, I remember when we would show there, and anyone that's been involved in a show, you know that um, you, you, you know, you'll arrive and you'll do something, and they'll say, well, you've got to use this lighting company, you've got to use this sound, you've got, you've got to do all these different things. And yours, your attitude was very much, well, what works for you? you know, how can we make this work? Yeah, that, that we wanted to be category neutral as best as we could, because there, a lot of designers like to work with different hairdressers and makeup artists, and we didn't want to prohibit them from bringing in additional funds from other brands if they needed to, if we were exclusive to just one. I feel like there was a real purity as well, and it was really about enabling young designers. That's what it was about. It wasn't like, we can make loads of money, we can build this up and then sell it. You know, I mean, that's a nice thing to do, and you, you were lucky to, enough to do that, but that wasn't the driving ambition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it wasn't. So Matt, you were in finance and research before. So how did you, on earth did you do that to go into this beautiful cashmere company? 
Mm, well, uh, I hated it. I, I mean, I'm, I was an analyst, and if anyone here has ever been an analyst at a private equity firm or a venture capital firm, it's grueling. They beat the hell out of you. And, I wasn't uh, listening, sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you and me both. Um, uh, and I, so I quit after three years of cutting my teeth pretty hard, um, and I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I just knew that doing what I was doing and not being in love with what I was doing uh, wasn't going to result in success for me, and um, so I more or less cut out on my own, not having any interest in being in, in fashion. And it wasn't until at least a year and a half later that I even realized that I was in that industry. And still to this day, I'm kind of like I don't I don't know if I am or not. Um, you know, the truth is, I kind of went a very roundabout way of getting into um, selling clothing. Um, I had more interest in working with this community, and uh, there's a longer story. I'll, I'll save you guys from most of it, but I got lost in the Gobi Desert, and I, I was taken care of by a family of nomadic herders for about a month, and they fed me, and they clothed me, and um, uh, I, I, it, I mean, it is totally, totally true. I was, so after I quit, I took a plane to Mongolia to go backpacking with a buddy of mine who is a, a Econometrics is his focus. He has a master's and, and was earning a PhD, and he's a total nerd. But he was going to check out Mongolia, and he said, just come with me. You're the only person I know who doesn't have a job. So that's, that's, that's <laughs> like, honestly how I got there. You haven't got a job, just going to fashion. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, but so, uh, yeah, I got, it wasn't, I wasn't like kidnapped, but there was a lot of, um, misinformation or miscommunication, I should say. And after a broken down car ride, 20 hours off-roading in the middle of the Gobi Desert, I arrived at a gur in the middle of um, the Mongolian steppe. And this family took care of me. And I had no way of getting home. Eventually, I did get home. But I left feeling like, uh, I need to find a way to give back to these people. They took care of me for, for no reason whatsoever. Um, they literally clothed me and fed me. And so, um, uh, I started this small nonprofit, and I actually did a Kickstarter way back when, and I pretended like I could sell sweaters, uh, and I didn't know anything about selling sweaters at the time. I just pulled some from a manufacturer and then had to make thousands of them for the 2,000 people that, that ordered them. Uh, that was a debacle on its own. But anyways, I've been through a ton of crazy, wacky experiences. So, but at this point, so you don't have a job, you've fallen in love with these people, and yeah. you think, I can use their product to make sweaters. Uh, more or less, um, after after realizing that they were subjected to a trade system in these remote regions that marginalized them. So uh, let's say you guys are nomadic herders. I'm a trader. I show up and I say, um, uh, everything you have is worth $2. Uh, and me and my friends here, we're only going to pay you $2. Uh, but we buy it for 2 and we sell it for 10 That's not really fair. Someone should go in there and pay the pay you guys $4 and then not resell it. And that's, that's what we ended up doing. That's how we started the business, that kind of reassessing what um, economics should look like and what sustainability ultimately looks like. It's about economic sustainability. And that, that's a really important point. And Matt and I have crossed over on this many times because I go, go around the world telling people about sustainability, although I'm certainly not an expert. But one of the reasons I'm excited by what you do is that sustainability isn't something that you're pursuing. It's just the natural outcome of the smartest way for you to do business. And I feel like when you see big companies and they, they have like a CSR office and they think, oh, we're fine, we've got a CSR office, it means nothing. It, your entire fundamental basis for business it happens to be sustainable. 
Yeah, I mean, um, we it, redefine it more Responsible, or less. yeah. I hate yeah. the word sustainable. And you've heard me say that a bunch of times. I hate that word. Um, for us, it's just good business, right? It's sustainable business practices. And we, we carry that through everything everything we do. Um, now, after all of this, we ended up being in, in fashion. And uh, I don't know a thing about making a, a trendy sweater. And so I don't, I don't do it. You, you know what I mean? Like, my objective is to grow the, big, the business big enough so that we can afford to hire people that are much, talent, much more talented talented um, than I could ever, ever hope to be. Um, but yeah, uh, sustainability for us is uh, just a smart business practice. It has nothing to do with how we market it. And so something else that's come up in your business, which I'm equally fascinated by, is your distribution. So we talked at length a while back about Stitch Fix and how smart that is. And now you've gone from being an online primarily company to having your own retail space. Yeah, it's been a, a really rewarding experience. We just launched our first store, uh, Nolita, on Elizabeth and Houston, so go check it out. Um, uh, but uh, we also do shop and shops, so we, we work with retailers, which is a tricky part of the business, for sure. So if you're starting a company, it seems easy to just start selling into a retailer. But uh, the net-net effect of working with them is actually sometimes worse than um, going directly to the customer. I mean, listen, there's challenges... I could go on forever about how hard this all is. Um, uh, just look at my hairline. But the, the thing is, um, we're exploring everything. We, we're multi-channel. We uh, do shop and shops at retailers. We, we distribute through traditional wholesale methods, e-commerce, pop-up shops. We sell yarns. I do private label. I do off-price. Any way to make money. Um, because you have to have money to continue in this business. The cash flow is too, too crazy. There are so many little snippets. So for those of you that, you know, the title of this is how to get into and stay in the fashion business. For those of you that are trying to do that, there are so many snippets in what they're both saying that I hope you're picking up on that we'll try and summarize them later. So one thing, Janae, this, this that struck me about what Matt was saying, but I know you sort of alluded to it as well, was getting people involved, which sounds so obvious. And yet people don't. You know, you've got to make friends with everybody. You've got to come to events like this and meet people. I mean, some of the designers that you, you talked about got their start from, you know, from working with you guys. And, you know, a lot of them meet socially. I mean, it's, it's a very social industry. I mean, that was a big part of what Made was doing, bringing people together. Yeah, I mean, so there was a while ago, people used to ask me what I did. And I was like, I collect people. And I, I, I think there's so much currency in the value of your relationships with people because you can't do it on your own. Um, and, and so we just thought, why don't we all, the, the more designers that we have together, the more support we can offer one another. And I think it's like peers supporting peers. I think, you know, when your friends do well, it's a, it's a reflection on you. So when the industry as a whole sort of bands together and are rooting for each other, one of my favorite moments is when we went to Alex Wang's show um, up somewhere on the West Side Highway, and we had to leave r immediately after because Joseph Altazara was about to have his first runway show. And right when the show starts, Alex Wang runs in and just sits on the floor and watches one of his best friends at his show. And that was the spirit that we like to embrace and continue to embrace um, because you just, it's not about you, like, and this isn't in a way that like you're using people, you know, just to get something for your benefit. I, I, I think we all benefit from each other's successes. It's, um, I, I feel as someone, as like most people in this room, presumably, and perhaps most people in the city, I'm an immigrant. 
You know, I came here because I could, I could do things in New York that I couldn't do anywhere else. And I think, not to say that anywhere else isn't wonderful, I'm sure there's lots of great places where you can do things, but it feels like what we do here is a New York thing. Well, I, I, and I think Matt as well, I think it's about challenging the system in a way that's responsible, not arrogant. And I think if you don't inherit things and do them just because that's the way that they've always been done, take a look at back and set the new standards and make the new rules because you, you, you have the opportunity to do that. And I think in particular, and also to Matt's point, you know, the wholesale business for designers is really challenging. It can be really exciting because, yay, I get an order from the, you know this big retailer, but then I have to buy it all back and because they, it didn't sell and it, it, it and they keep all you know X percentage of the sales and it's really challenging. So I think right now there's such an incredible opportunity in addition to being vertically integrated to rethink your relationships with wholesalers and how is that system possibly being redefined? Yeah, it's interesting with, with the two of you there because, Janae, you obviously would have come across designers that they arrive and they think, all I want to do is sell to Barney's. That's it. That's my whole dream. And I'm like, you know? no, yeah, they, they'll <laughs> kill you. Be, yeah, it could be it's the last thing in the yeah, world you yeah. should do. You know, whereas, Matt, you come from a world where you're like, all I need to do is see the bottom line on this spreadsheet work. You know, and it needs to work for everybody, which is not... Which, and, and I hope that... I remember I interviewed um, Chris Spenz once for a book that I wrote. Uh, and I said to him, you know, what's the most important thing? Casually anyway? drops that he wrote a book, by the way. <laughs> oh, don't read it. Ever you, like, I, I strongly encourage you to not read it. Um, but anyway, someone, someone asked him in this kind of environment, what's the, one of the most important things you would... bits of advice you'd give? And he said, study math. You know, I'm a, I'm a designer, but study math. Because if you can't, you can't pay your freelance people, you can't yeah. calculate your patterns, you, you can't do anything. And it's wonderful because, you know, designers sometimes watch television and, or young people watch television and they think, oh, I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to swan around with fabric all day and make, you know, nasty comments, which is so incredibly far from the reality of, of how it goes. I mean, it's a wonderful, caring, nurturing industry. I genuinely feel that. It's incredibly difficult to get started in this industry, and I'm still kind of figuring it out. Like I'm always scratching my head. Like, is this going to work? How does how does this work? And uh, ultimately, I think that that's a positive. The industry, from my perspective, is um, changing a lot right now, and no one, if they tell you they know how it's going to end up, they're lying or full of shit. Um, they don't know. Um, so from my perspective, we try everything because maybe one of them will work. I mean, one of them has to work. Um, yeah, I love that. I, I'm such a big fan and proprietor of encouraging mistakes and, and, and naivety, too. Like, I, I also help start and build companies, and you think that it should just you should have every answer, but you don't have that crystal ball. You can't see into the future, so you just kind of have to go with it and just hope that it sticks and it works, and if it doesn't, then congratulations, you failed, and you've just learned something incredible. Well, it's a really good point. We um, we raise money from Silicon Valley, more or less, right? And um, you sit in meetings with people who've invested in the companies that we've heard of in the fashion industry, or kind of on the fringes of it, like let's say an Allbirds or Kuyana or something that is emerging and doing really well. They don't know why they're successful. Like I'll sit from across the table from them and say, well, you know, why did you invest in that? What was good about that? 
honestly, they, they don't know. Some things are just luck in a certain way. One shoe styled a certain way, I don't know. It's just right timing, and um, there's a lot of that in, in business. And so I might get lucky. Uh, I think we have some things that might allow us to get lucky, but I just need to give myself the runway to be there when it happens. And, and that's a big part of the success in this industry. Um, we only see the people who are successful more or less, right? We only see the designers that are uber, uber successful. We hear those crazy success stories. That is not always the case. And when you hear something that's like skyrocketing from, you know, in a year, it's a billion dollars. Like, more often than not, that's a press. That's like fluff. Like, the reality of that is there was someone, like, toiling away for four years before that and ready to, like, jump out of a window the day before it worked. Um, so <laughs> resiliency and, like, a little bit of patience doesn't hurt, but definitely a lot of luck. So, Janae, you were uh, very, you know, making the final decision most of the time on who showed in made. What did you look for? And were there any sort of outstanding ones you missed and terrible ones you chose? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, sorry, I just remembered you were right every time. <laughs> Never, women are never wrong. Um, no, we, um, I, I looked for passion, and there would be times, and some designers would come in and they'd be like, and look at this inseam, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I, I, I don't, people right now don't care as much about every little detail. We care if you, if you have spirit and if you've got a sense of enthusiasm and true passion for something that a lot of times with designers their egos would get in their way because they would want to become a designer to make a name for themselves and that was always sort of glaringly obvious when we would meet with I mean there was there there were times when we were meeting easily with 40 designers a week and there's a there it, 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 the question kind of goes back to then how do you measure success because then there's commercially viable designers um that do really well, but then there's designers that are just incredibly talented um, with their designs, like a McQueen, for example, who back in the day, you know, th that, that's not making tons of money, but it's making maximum impact. So I think, I think it's really about what your type of design is during the time of which you're showing it. Because I think like, for example, with like Virgil and Heron, they're very much of this moment. And a lot of, you know, like I was just at the Fenty Puma show the other night, and that felt like Alex Wang when he first started. And it's really exciting because streetwear is really important and relevant. And um, because it's not just about the clothes, it's about the behavior and everything behind it. Yeah, I think asking yourself why you're doing it you know, whatever you want to be in. Fashion is a wonderful industry to be in, and you can do anything in it from, from finance to medicine to construction to retail to fashion design, etc. But you've got to ask yourself why, because it's really hard. And I think when you're, what you, you've mentioned spirit, you know, identifying what somebody is really, do they want to just have a massive ego in a runway show, or do they want to build a sustainable, a responsible business and be very successful at doing it? You know, it, they're both very noble ambitions, and when you spot them, you can think, all right, yeah, I can get behind that. I'll help someone to do that. But you've got to, as the person who's trying to make this application, you've got to know what that is, and you've got to ask yourself some very difficult questions. I spoke to someone the other day, um, and I, you know, I was trying to give them some advice. And I said, what do you want to do? And they said, well, I can't decide if I want to be an, you know, a fashion designer or this other thing. And I said, well, then forget it. Because if you don't, if, you know, if, if this one fashion thing is not the only thing you can possibly dream of doing forever, 
well, the guy next to you is going to be that person. So it, you know, it's not going to work for you because you yeah, can't both it, have it. It takes it takes a lot of resilience and a lot of perseverance and a lot of focus to just know that every day that you continue to tick away at it, it's one step closer to to achieving your goal. And I think, again, there's, and I hope that I'm not personally coming off as being discouraging because it's an, obviously an incredible business, uh, a very exciting one at that. Um, but it's, it's, it's an incredible filter too because it's really going to test you to see if you're worthy and do you have what it takes to stay in this industry because it isn't easy. That would be a great panel, wouldn't it? If we got people together, it would be massively discouraging. Yeah. Just spend like have 45 minutes being miserable and downbeat <laughs> about it and see if anyone wanted to stay in the business. <laughs> so um, on, the, on the other hand, uh, we are, we'd love to get questions from anyone in the audience. So uh, I'm going to actually send Janae away at 7.30 because she's got somewhere else to be. Can you believe this is the last day of Fashion Week and you're still alive? You're still walking. You still Wait. look fabulous. <laughs> Simon, like a month ago, was like, can you do this panel? And I was like, of course, I'm in town. And then I wake up this morning. I'm like, of course, it's the last day of Fashion Week. And I can barely get a sentence out. So thanks for bearing with me. You're doing wonderfully, really. And you're not off the hook because you have to go somewhere yeah. else. Uh, are there are questions in the audience because I want to talk about Fashion Week, the state of and where we're going. But uh, yes, in the front there. Um, we have a microphone, actually. Then we, we can, well, no, we can commit you to the God. podcast then. Um, I, can't, I can't do that. I hate the I'll repeat it. So you, are, you ask again, I'll repeat it. Um, well, this fashion week for New York has been, I, I think, noticeably quieter than what I've noticed in the past. Um, and that's probably paramount to the changes that are happening with consumers and, and retail and whatnot. Do you think we're at a time where we can start, I don't know, putting a price tag on seats at runway shows for influencers, on social media and this kind of thing? So the question is, uh, uh, the, the questioner has suggested that <coughs> Fashion Week has changed and it's become noticeably quieter uh, with the economy struggling and this, this toxic administration, perhaps. I, I added that bit. Um, <laughs> so is this... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm never going to be on stage without insulting Trump. It's just not going to happen. Um, is, there, is this a moment when we could do something like put price tags on seats at runway shows for influencers, etc.? What do you think about that, Janae? Well, I mean, there's a couple of questions in there. I will say that Made LA, um, we, we sell tickets to um, our Made LA, and it's we're sort of using LA as a testing ground to see how we're going to, the landscape is shifting. And I think that's very obvious, whether you're in it or outside of it, it's, it's shifting. People are showing in Paris. Our, we took a step back and we're like, well, who, what's really important to designers? And we're like, consumers. Like, you can have every buyer and editor there, but why not, you know, and this goes back to being vertically integrated, just go direct to the consumer. So we're like, why don't we start <clears throat> doing fashion as entertainment? So we just in June had Snoop Dogg, um, Wiz Khalifa, other ones that I can't remember, um, <laughs> paired with designers. And all of our shows sold out. And the season before, oh, we had opening ceremony and um, RZA. And then the season before that, we had Tyler, the creator, and it was incredible because we give these artists permission to create a performance with 
a designer, and then we allow for all of the collection or some pieces from it to be immediately shoppable after the show. So people go, pay for a ticket, see this whole incredible performance, and then can, can buy it right away. Um, and we started to test things out, too, with 3D scanners. Um, so I don't know if that's answering your question, um, but I, we're proving in LA for it to be a success so far. I think that no one owns Fashion Week, and I love this. And people, you know, there's been all this talk about New York Fashion Week. And if the only mistake people can make is by being too uptight about it. We talked about Fashion Week with Rashna from Rashna Shah from KCD two years ago now at the first FCD. And she said, Why is everyone complaining? Fashion Week's working great for loads of people. So get with it or, or go somewhere else. You know, and I, I, every time I see someone messing with the way that Fashion Week is done, I get excited because I think that's the whole point of it. You know, just the way that you guys do. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't disrupt the system, it's just going to stay the same, and then you become complacent, and nobody grows, nothing is challenged, and and the the, the big guy wins. You know, yeah. we like the underdog. We like we like being told that we can't do something because it challenges us to come up with a way to make it happen. Yeah. Another question from the audience, anyone? Oh, okay, everyone's being all quiet. See, when I was used to be at Parsons, I'd always start people off by saying, I'm gonna ask questions, and you better make it a good one, otherwise I shall come and get you <laughs> and make you ask something. Um, so Matt, tell us about your retail exposure. So you talked, and I wanna hear a bit more about Stitch Fix as well, because when we were talking about data, like this is a slightly tangential, soft, to me, right, the big, three, the big two things in fashion are, Technology and sustainability or responsibility is a much better word. And we were talking about responsibility, but you've been using data, which when people say big data, I always think, <laughs> fuck off. But, <coughs> but you've been using it very smartly. Yeah, well, I, uh, we collect a lot of data. As like I said, most of our business is done online. And I think what we're seeing is you really can't replace uh, genuine design inspiration. That will never change. But we collect enough data on different subsets of customers around the country to know that certain pockets of people are more interested in a navy blue jumper than they are a lightweight pink cardigan. And uh, we can predict both inventory planning off of the back of that data, and we can really be much more concise about the money we spend on developing new product every year. Uh, again, that won't really ever replace um, the design side. There, there, there will always be real design inspiration, and I count on it from our design team. Um, but uh, data is king, and it's not like uh, big data. Like I, I don't know what that is even, um, but it's just highly qualitative. Meaning that, like, if I were to ask everyone in the audience who here likes navy blue, I would know. Like that's that's the level of data that we want to infuse in our product development. I think. Um, you know, we work with a host of different retailers, and I think part of what's really cool about our position in the industry is we work with retailers at the material level, we work with them on the manufacturing side, we work with them on the fashion piece, on the retail side, and so I kind of see a little bit of everything, specifically within knitwear. I guess there are other categories I wouldn't know about. However, um, we work with one retailer in particular called Stitch Fix, and I don't, do you guys know, everyone knows what Stitch Fix is? I mean, uh, six months or seven months ago, maybe less people would have known what it is. It's just a box that shows up at your house and it has some clothing in it, and if you like it, you take it. However, um, 
they collect a ton of data. So if you get a box, uh, they know what you don't like and what you do like, right? They see your purchase behavior and then they, you answer a survey and they're collecting all this information and when we sell them product, they then give us a report on a monthly basis that says uh, your larges are 80% off in sizing, right? That's a collection of data. Your pink colors are not selling as well, right? Like a host of information that we then use to infuse how we sell product directly to the customer online. Um, the short version here is just data is immensely important both in the design process and uh, inventory planning, which is how you more or less make money. And yet, the, <clears throat> our wonderful beloved department stores still want heavy winter clothing in August when you can't possibly wear it. However, I did, then you read people like Tom Ford who say, my customer will buy it in August because they want to be the first to have it and it's in limited quantities. So there's that dichotomy of, well, somebody wants it, but not everyone wants it. And you can't just give it to somebody and not others. But maybe that's where the fashion show comes in and maybe you know, the customer can go to the fashion show in, in the more sort of consumer-focused fashion show and purchase from there. The shelf life you know, of, of clothes is just the window is getting smaller and smaller and smaller because of the Zaras and because of Instagram and social media. If, it, it, if we see it now, it depreciates in value if we can't get it for six, until six months later because I will then get it three weeks later at Zara and then by the time the real one is available to me, I'm over it. And it's been seen before. So I think that um, that's a really, you know, and I, I see a lot of designers that are incorporating both because there are real production challenges that, and barriers that is just very difficult to get around. But then I look at Gucci, you've never had it so good. And they're still on 100% on the old model, yeah. you know, and, and great for them. And they're doing brilliantly. And there's a lot of other designers. So it, what strikes me is everything still works, yeah. but nothing works. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like it, whatever was the old way of doing it, we'll stop that. But now find your way of doing it. Yeah. I mean, last time I checked, Macy's was still like a $20 billion business, right? Like those things, while the market is declining, they still make up the majority of purchasing behavior. We're just seeing different purchasing behaviors emerge. Some of them are right off of the runway, others are online, but it's fractional compared to the traditional way of doing things. Um, that's my argument to some investors, and most of the time they don't like that, so I don't get money from them. But, um, uh, you know, I just think um, to discount um, discount the traditional side of the business is really stupid when, in fact, you can make money there. Uh, and that's, I mean, like, yeah, we want, like, to design clothing and we want to help people, but, like, you have to make money to do all that stuff. And we don't want to forget that. I hate to be the person up here that's, like, money, like, that's not really how we are. But regardless, I think it's the reality of, of the particular situation. No one ever just gave me money for free. One of the things that's emerging for me from this conversation is it reminds me of something that Ed Filipowski, so the chairman of KCD, said years and years ago at one of your panels at MADE, when he said, as a young designer, if you spend money on anything that you can't sell, you're wasting it. You know, it's like if you spend money on PR or on anything else other than fabric, you can make into clothes and sell, you're wasting it. And, you know, to sort of transpose what you were just saying, Matt, you know, it's find different ways of making money because there is no single route to doing that. So if you're trying to break into the fashion industry, figure out the route that works for you, not how does someone else do it, especially not how does someone else tell you to do it. That's the last thing you should be doing. 
I think there's like that piece of like if you love what you do, like you'll be successful. Like you not only have to love what you do, but then you have to work your fucking ass off. And I think that like sometimes people forget that. Um, it's a huge part of the the equation. But you have to like do your own thing and then work sixteen hours a day. Yeah. Any more questions? I'm going very quiet at the back. Look at that. Huh? <laughs> oh, is there one there? I can't see. Oh, thank you. Two in two in the front, Charles. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you had talked to investors who didn't know why the business they invested in were successful, but certainly they did know why they didn't pass on those businesses. Can you talk about if you are trying to start and succeed with a fashion business, when you go talk to investors, what do you need to already have? Oh, that's a yeah, that's a really yeah. good question, what but is a, that? a big one. If I knew, I would. <laughs> well, you have a fund as well, so people yeah. now come to you for money. And that's really exciting, too. Um, no, I think, um, one, you have to have a really solid business strategy. You have to really understand the market that you're entering into. I used to kind of flit around with good product and decent branding, and it wasn't until I really understood the market implication, right? So you have to understand what the investor's doing. They raise a fund of money. They go to a couple of very, very wealthy people and they take their money and then they invest it for them. Um, they have to show returns quickly to go uh, incentivize those people to give them more money and then tell their friends to give them even more money. That's, that's the system that you're part of. So what are they looking for? Rapid growth. Business has to be growing quickly. This is just venture capital. This isn't family office funding. This isn't... Um, uh, I think we're looking for the secret word. That only people like you know, like Jabberwocky or something, and then the people give you money. I wish. I seriously wish it was that easy. It's really not. You have to. You have to know your shit. Like you not only have to have a very solid uh, business plan based on the economics of how you grow. You have to show some growth. Um, I've heard a great product and good branding is is uh, requisite. But you still have to have all the other pieces. A very strong team in place. You have to have a good use of funds strategy. Um, you really just have to know what you're doing. I think uh, for me, we, you and I have talked about this. I would add that you've got to be someone they can believe in, you know, which is a little bit tragic because it means you've got to be a good communicator. You've got to be able to talk about what you're doing in a really authoritative and trustworthy way. Because mm -hmm. in the end, it's pieces of paper and you. That's what they're investing in because there's not much business there if you're relatively new. Yeah, I mean, I was at the stage for a long time where it was like all about Matt, right? Like, I have to wow them. I feel like being an actor in that room and convince them that I'm worthy of their investment. And as I've grown, the, the conversation has changed, right? We raise growth capital, not just seed funding anymore. But if you're getting a business started, you're raising seed funding. And it is highly... Um, highly focused on your personality. Are you stable? Are you passionate? Are you someone that they believe can do this? Oftentimes it helps if you've done it before. So you've actually got to impress them and Janae. So um, <laughs> yeah. Manisha, uh, this is the last question, so yes. Just wanted to ask Janae how best to contact her. <laughs> <laughs> You're hilarious. Um, I will give that to you right after this. <laughs> Thank you. So Janae's Great question. <laughs> Janae is very prolific on Instagram, so uh, yeah. you can always follow her there. And uh, I, I, I didn't want to say DM me. I'll give you my number. <laughs> right, right. Did anyone see that um, that LinkedIn listing? No, no, not LinkedIn. Like Instagram, where someone said best ways to contact me, like Twitter, Instagram, blah 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 blah, coming through my window, and then last LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Poor LinkedIn. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I've really Thanks. enjoyed talking to you. This has been the Fashion Culture Design Podcast. And uh, please join us in thanking Janae and Matt. <laughs>